this is the fourth day of our Invisible Ink Symposium, so some of us are getting tired, but that's good. We can get over that. Welcome, everyone, um, to this final session on this beautiful Sunday afternoon here on the third floor of Bulabadip in the Connections Gallery. Um, we have a gorgeous session for you today with some of my favourite people in the world, out of sight and out to sea, telling stories of childhood lost through theatre and creative narrative. I'm, my name is Shaheen um, and I lead a wonderful team at the Museum of Freedom and Tolerance. This event is part of the Invisible Ink Festival, um, the aim of which in this place of many stories is really to shine a light on some of the stories that perhaps aren't told in museums and in galleries, but some of the stories difficult as they may be, that we really need to hear as a community. And our call to action is to invite people to see differently, to see some of the stories around us differently as we journey from places and sort of cultural spaces like this into the world, um, to be transformed by those stories and to make change. And the artists and we have here this afternoon have a gift, a knack of creating transformation and change. So welcome, Jay Marzia. Lily and Joe. Um, I'd like to um, begin firstly by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we stand and to pay my respect to elders past and present. Um, and I will hand the mic over to Jay to begin with. We'll introduce ourselves and then we'll come back and do a round um, where you introduce your projects and you've got some video to show as well. Kaya. Um, my name is Jay Emmanuel. I am uh, the writer and director of Children of the Sea, the work we'll talk about today. Uh, but apart from that, I'm a theatre maker, um, born in India, and um, migrated here about 11 years ago, and uh, when I was 14. And that really left a lasting impression, and the stories I wanted to tell, and uh, the stories I wanted to bring in front of people. Um, and there was a lot I didn't understand about Australia. And so my whole career <laughs> is about understanding Australia and who we are, who we are as a country. And um, we'll talk more about that. And I, I, uh, when I work, I like to uh, involve community in my process because uh, there is usually a lot of walls between what we see on stage and what is actually really happening. And if we want to find out who we are as a nation, we need to actually, uh, you know, um, how do you say, uh, crash that wall? How do you drop that wall? <laughs> um, yeah, so we'll, we'll talk more about that very soon. Thank you, um, Kaya. I'm Marzia. Um, I'm also a migrant, um, although my story takes a little bit of a <laughs> detour in that I was born in Hong Kong, grew up in Kenya, and then moved here. Um, and I've been here for about 15 years now. And um, I'm an artist, activist, and general troublemaker, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, but um, the works that I'm going to talk about are more in the activism sphere and how art and activism intersect um, in order to tell these stories that are usually untold. Um, I'm also a PhD student at the moment, so lots of different hats. And I'll pass on to Lily. Hi, everyone. I'm Lily Blue. I'm a Jewish queer interdisciplinary artist and also the head of learning and creativity research at the Art Gallery of Western Australia. Um, I'm also the grandchild of Holocaust survivors and the co-creator and co-founder of Big Kids magazine, a contemporary arts magazine that publishes the work of children and artists side by side. And we'll be talking a bit more about a project that sits within um, Big Kids magazine. Kaya, everyone. Um, my name is Jo Pollitt, and I am a dancer by trade and have a doctorate in that area in writing as dancing. And I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow in the School of Education at Edith Cowan University. Um, so I come with a, a, an interdisciplinary background as well. And together with Lily, we created Big Kids magazine uh, more than 10 years ago. And that's the story we're going to be telling today. Thank you all. Um, one of the reasons um, we've put you together, um, your work has sort of emerged in parallel, I think, over the last few years. And one of the unique characteristics of all your work is you are drawn to these very dark, very difficult human stories. But 
you do it with such tenderness and empathy and grace and interwoven in these difficult, difficult plot lines. There's so much hope and sparks of joy and sparks of light um, that you draw people in rather than push them away. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, what drew you to this style of work, um, starting maybe with Jay. So Jay, Children of the Sea has just premiered, congratulations, at Perth Festival. Um, has, did anyone see, was anyone lucky enough to see Children of the Sea? Yes. <laughs> um, it will come back, it will re-emerge, but um, an incredibly powerful tale and, and a beautiful, beautiful cast of, of young refugees who have great futures ahead of them. So I'll hand over to you. Zoe will throw to the video. but also like beauty and um, yeah, understanding of the story. But it was a really good job. <laughs> um, so what you saw, <laughs> the very first video was of the children who were in the show and uh, I'll go back a little bit in, back in time, just five years ago. I was given a letter by uh, another director friend of mine, and um, that was a letter from somebody who was detained in the Villawood Detention Center. And that letter was, uh, this director received that letter in 2007, and she gave it to me in 2015, and that person was still in detention when I came to Australia in 2016. And um, that is what actually drew me back uh, to Australia. That's where the whole journey started. And actually, Marzi was the first person I spoke to about this. Um, and um, I traveled around Australia for about six months uh, to collect stories, to learn of those stories on Manus, Nauru, uh, in Australia, offshore, onshore detention centers. Um, and people who had come to boat uh, by boat um, in the past or at that moment or of people who were still uh, detained. And from there, uh, we, I started collecting these stories. There were about 67 of them. And one of them was with a 14-year-old. Uh, at that moment, he was 19, 18, 19, 18-19-year-old 19 Ali Reza, who is in Sydney now. Um, he and I, I had a meeting with him and he arrived to Australia by boat and he was only 14 when he did. And that was the first time that there was a sense of an adventure or perspective that we hadn't heard before. And that started a whole new journey of learning what this journey does to a young person um, and how do children actually deal with tragedy and um, how does this morph uh, a childhood. And that was the kind of like the whole interrogation of the Children of the Sea work. 
Um, and while we were making this work, we wanted to make sure that it is actually told by the children who had either lived experience or uh, the second generation uh, children. And that was a six-month process that went um, around giving workshops, uh, theatre workshops around Perth, and um, then boiling down to about five kids who are in the show and um, tell the story of um, coming to Australia by boat uh, from Indonesia. And it's about five nights journey and how they make it and um, how their childhood morphs into something else. Yeah. Marcia, do you want to talk a little bit about your sort of, I guess you sit a little bit more on the activist side of, of the conversation with Jay, but are also intimately involved in um, advocating for child refugees in particular. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and some of your more recent experiences? Sure. Um, so I got involved with... Um, so I was doing activism before I knew what the word activism was, to be honest. So, you know, being involved in things that happened in Kenya and then coming here. But sort of the actual step towards saying this is what I want to do, and particularly around refugees, was in 2013 when the offshore detention centres were reopened. And so the very first protest that I went to was the really big one around that in Perth. And... As someone who has used art in particular to mitigate experiences of really high anxiety and such, I took my camera along and discovered that when I was taking photos of what was going on, that was one way of dealing with my own issues but also being involved and documenting, um, documenting how people were coming together to say, no, we don't want this to happen, this is not okay. And it was my introduction into how the power of activism can be used to um, draw attention to issues, to push um, certain narratives back into public consciousness that had been silenced. And so I kind of went off on that track of, being, of becoming a protest photographer and specifically taking photos at protests. Now, I'm quite familiar with the refugee narrative. Um, I did mention in my previous talk that um, my parents had experiences of displacement. So while I have not had that experience myself, um, you know, I, I say this, if my parents did not get on a boat, I would not be here today, as simple as that. Their experience was around um, the Indo-Pak subcontinent and in terms of specifically the um, Bangladesh War of Independence and you know, even though the term refugee is not one that they necessarily identify with, the experiences are very, very similar. And so that's really impacted on my life and it explains a lot about how I was brought up, the kind of stories I heard growing up, and how this now resonates with me in terms of looking at these stories and it's still happening. People are still moving and they were around the same age as the children in Children of the Sea. Like, um, you know, my parents, they were teenagers when they had this experience, but they didn't talk about it as much because of all the trauma that they endured, that it was one of those things that came up from time to time. And so it's really impacted on my knowledge around my own identity and my creative practice in wanting to help to amplify those voices that don't get heard, um, the ones that are silenced for whatever reason, so whether by putting them in detention centers that are placed deliberately where people can't access them, or um, you know, potentially not allowing media to report on things that are going on there, and that's really where I'm focusing a lot of my, um, I guess, installation art practice and other practices that I'm working on. Um, so in terms of children in particular, um, there was this campaign, the Kids Out All Out campaign from Kids on Nauru, um, but children are still in detention, even though they say there are no children in detention. Um, and the biggest case that we know is the family that was taken from their homes in Biloela um, three years ago. In fact, Friday was the third anniversary of that happening. And there are two children there, um, and one was just an infant when she was taken. So she's three now. And she's that, that's all she's known is detention. Um, and so my, maybe later on I will actually play a clip from them. Um, 
because they are, so the two sisters are five and three and they are still in detention and their family is being kept there as an example to, I guess, stop others, but stop others from what? Seeking safety, from, you know, wanting a life for themselves and their families. And so this is why there's so much push around that to kind of acknowledge. And we hear so much all the time about how, you know, children are the ones who are the most silenced um, in these spaces. So I want people to be able to actually hear their voices. Lily and Joe, we had a beautiful morning um, downstairs in the courtyard with the um, two of you and your beautiful, beautiful narrative of perpetual arrival. You've taken a very specific and dark story and made it universal, um, made it one of perpetual arrival that all of us feel in some way, um, whether we've had these sort of direct refugee experiences or not. Over to you. Um, I'd love to hear how you arrived at your story. Thanks, Shaheen. So our entry is really specific into this world and it um, began, Lily and I began a conversation in uh, the middle of 2010 about creating a children's magazine that was um, for artists and children to disrupt hierarchies and, and, and it was really to do with art. About a month after we began that conversation, on the 15th of December in 2010, there was a boat that crashed into the... Um, the cliffs in, on Christmas Island and um, it was an extremely significant moment. There were about 100 people on that boat. About 50 um, died, including nine children, four of whom were infants at the time. So this was a very um, visual kind of um, experience for both of us. Lily was at the time living in Sydney and I was living in Perth. So we had never actually had a face-to-face -face meeting about the magazine. It was all made on, um, on online. So this conversation happened through letters and emails and when that boat crashed, the whole of uh, the magazine kind of shifted and it did become much more activist in its pursuit, particularly from um, Lily's perspective. So I'm the daughter of a folk singer in, in Kenya and I grew up in Mpongani with my you know, father building houses for people and, and we left when I was about five. It, that kind of informs the journey. Lily's journey is a very different one and together where we've arrived, that moment really sparked something. So as by way of introduction, we're actually going to just read that initial email, which we haven't, haven't done before. We just found it, printed it out. It's 10 years old. So we'll, here we go. So I'll talk, a little, I'll talk a little bit later about the years that led to this moment for me and the history that led to the kinds of questions that were raised on this night when this email exchange um, happened. Dear Joe, I write to you late in the night, commission almost finished, cramp in my wrist and uneasy in the cathode ray warmth. Tomorrow I'll take a piece of inked paper to a framer who will press it behind glass before lunch so it can be exchanged for $1,000 and hung on a wall in a house full of food and unnecessary objects. At the same time, elsewhere, there are children who are starving or being raped or thrown against the rocks on the edge of a country whose people think boats have legs and hearts not worth knowing. Right now, while my baby sleeps on cool sheets and the rains fall, there are children crying and I can't bear it, the sound of them calling for help and me sitting here with my privilege wrapped around my shoulders. Joe. I want to rise up in an unbridled, furious rage and yell full force into the faces of presidents and policemen and bystanders. I don't want to be contained, rational, non-judgmental, politically correct, unemotional, intelligent, non-argumentative, civilised, soundless or apologetic. There are children suffering. I want to scoop them up, hundreds and thousands of them into my arms, wrap them up from the cold, fan them from the heat, 
feed them from my body and stroke their little heads till they sleep, safe. I want to rip out the eyes of the perpetrators with my fists and howl into the sky until the air is yelling, until the women, the mothers, are standing with me, their fists in the air and the ground shaking with the force of their stampeding, yelling, bellowing, chanting, singing, shrieking, spitting, thundering, raging, enough. My pathetic attempts to do something are embarrassing and yet I don't know what, where, how. I can't put Twyla on my hip and head out into an unknown somewhere following the weeping and cries of distress. That's not possible. I can't reach out my arms for, for the thousands of little ones to crawl into. My arms are already full with the life of one little girl. And yet I lie awake in the dark and my rage burns. The children, the children are suffering. I think about sending our birds into the detention centres so little fingers can fold up one and press it into their pocket, maybe give some hope or a connection to a possible life. I want to go there with a truckload of birds drawn by children playing on the beaches and fold them into paper planes, stand at the fences and send them over and over and over and over so the ground is covered in birds and wings and the wind can take them again and again into the air but they will end up trampled and covered in red dust. I feel helpless. I've searched for years for a way to do something that can make a difference. And even make a difference sounds pathetic. So, we make Big Kids magazine. Big is born. Bravery, imagination and generosity. I say the words over and over and wonder how much of this it can hold. And my response was, hello, Lily. How to respond? That hurts my head. I know the children. Kath worked at the women's refuge for the last few years. I don't know even how to begin or how to start, but I know I can feel. My way in is to be with my own three children, to fold them in, to reel them out to the world, to listen, to respond with compassion, empathy and generosity. But it's an insular world we live in. I live in. I can't bear to look at the babies I see in such unstable circumstances. I am not such a political beast as you, perhaps. However, I've just left the news that I did marry for 10 years and now I am a political beast. So how to stem the tide of Mario Brothers in my own boys' young, young worlds, to shift the face of what's acceptable, to integrate magic back into the conservative childhoods of my boys' friends. I start from right here and go out. It is an overwhelming task, but I do think the work will take us, will take it there. I believe that working can do so much. Big Kids magazine won't reach the children smashed against the rocks, and to write that makes me want to be sick, actually. I don't pretend. I am prepared for discovery as we go. I'm open to challenge and crisis to new ways, to this own new world. I just want to offer somehow a different paradigm in all streams because knowledge and experience will make it possible to see more openly and this shift will shift the wider populace. This is what I actually do believe. I won't leave my own children to save others, but if I can do both, I will small steps. I don't want to break and drown because the leap is too big. It's already so big. And so I start to think about the Boatbird series the travelling boat bird, something to do with boat birds. 100,000 steps from home, he'd carried his boat. His head was flat and his heart full of too many days and too much water. He was tired. Finally, at the edge of the ocean, they stood. The barnacles attached to their wings slid off one by one in a little procession, a fleet, a flotilla. And so from there, Big Boat Bird was born. And that's how it all began. And it's about to be published in about two months' time. So, and, and just to say that that work um, of Boat Bird originally did go out about seven years ago on the Caravan of Courage and was thrown over the walls and fences of detention centres. So we kind of did get there <laughs> for a moment. Thank you both for sharing that incredibly intimate and compassionate
correspondence. Um, I think we all feel greater for it. Um, and you have this knack of turning unbridled rage, the unbridled rage of a mother, into something so incredibly beautiful. Um, talk to us a little bit about uh, what led you this morning, those beautiful moments in the sand as you read. Why was it so important? And I guess um, all through Invisible Ink, we've talked to artists and makers and producers who have consistently taken this unbridled rage we feel at the state of the world and turned it into art and the most incredible expression and a place that we can meet. You know, why is art so important in this journey? Um, Sean Nanup led us yesterday um, in a session on cultural healing and he, and he talked about art and song and dance and language and story being the way we are going to communicate with each other these difficult truths. So why is art for you um, the place you do this work? Um, I'll just give a tiny bit of background about the lead up to that moment when that email was sent. So um, my mum was born two years after my grandmother was emancipated from Auschwitz and two years later, they came to Australia on a boat and, uh, and arrived in Australia with papers that identified them as stateless. So they had no state. Um, they were Jewish, so they weren't allowed to have citizenship in Poland where they had been born. And so they arrived in Australia without a state. Um, and I was born into a family where the trauma of the Holocaust was a very normal part of our lives. So my grandfather would tell very, very, very graphic stories around the breakfast table about his experience in the Holocaust. And so I grew up not really knowing that those stories were not a normal thing to grow into. Um, and uh, the biggest question for me as a young child was how could people have let this happen? As I grew, I discovered that the Holocaust was not the only genocide and that I was actually born in a country that had its own genocide. And so um, as, a, as a child who had been saturated with stories of tra trauma and really couldn't absorb much more, I think the question for me became, so what now? And so um, the, the potential of an ambiguous, poetic, emotional, flexible, open-ended space to be able to sit with very, very complex and often divisive stories became increasingly and profoundly important. Also, as someone who did not land in this world as someone who was going to be a doctor or, you know, take on to do a profession that was able to go to one of those places and do the things that I felt had value. Um, I had always been an artist and suddenly I recognised that there was something in those poetries and ambiguities and the beauty of a story that could be universal that might make it possible for us to address those unspeakable things in a slightly different way. And so the birth of Boatbird and, and my commitment to the importance of the arts in telling stories and in terms of social impact sits across a much wider breadth, but certainly in terms of Boatbird and stories of displacement and diaspora and leaving home and losing ground. It felt like the story of Boatbird, tiny little naively drawn bird who carried a boat on their head, who had barnacles on their body that had grown from difficulty those barnacles slid off into the ocean and became like replenished and became turtles. And the idea that, we might, you know, hand um, ink and hand cut tiny turtles that we might place into people's hands might make space for the telling and feeling of stories of all our stories and of all our stories of displacement and of all our stories of coming home in a, in a slightly different way. That for me made space within the, um, the epi epigenetics of my own kind of inherited trauma and the way that those stories might just keep increasing to the point where I couldn't contain them or tell them anymore. It might, it might create an alternative to that. Do you want to? 
pretty much for me the, you know, dealing with kids and the commercial world that they're attached to, you know. So as a young mother starting out, my, my baby, my firstborn has now just started at university himself this week. So it's, it's been a long time since we began. Um, but we just couldn't also locate how to make it possible to have stories as part of children's narratives that were meaningful, that, you know, that you, you would go to, go to the supermarket and get a magazine with a, a free thing that you then you had to go to Target or Kmart or somewhere for to pick up the plastic thing that went with it. And, and we just couldn't... I couldn't believe that that's what, where we spent our money and time, that that's... And that's how we, we raise these kids with... And everything's connected to a shop or a, you buy something and it, it still is. But how to, to just... If you offer this turtle and even this morning in the tiniest child, you know, then we put this little barnacle in their hands and, and it becomes something other. You know, these stories emerge differently and conversations are then being able to be held differently across generations. So... I think the intergenerational conversation is what we were most interested in provoking, that you can have conversations with children and, you know, that is as meaningful as any other conversation and how that might change our perspe perspectives and what, what we can use as artists and thinkers to ignite those ways of telling stories and being in the world a little differently. And talk a little bit about the sand because I was watching you tell the story and you invited everyone to sit in the sand and as you read, people were fidgeting and, you know, in, in traditional practice at school, you had to sit really straight and not move and listen to the story and if you moved, you'd get in trouble. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wonder if, if that's sort of given birth to this style of um, unreceptivity to listening and learning um, and, and you read so differently this morning and you invited people to dig their feet in the sand and run the sand through their fingers and I felt like it was almost the story was going into their pores. Mm. I mean, you know, Joe, you have a, a you, you dance to tell mm. stories, you know, what is it about movement um, yeah. that inspires us to, to kind of receive more information? Yeah, I think, well, I have been um, in, a, in my new day job, desk job, I mean, you know, at a, at a table in the School of Education and I'm sh shocked openly by the, by the kind of conservative um, drive that is still there that I did not expect would be there coming from WAPA, coming from an arts. Um, I, I could not believe that that's actually what is happening in 2021. I was, I'm really shocked. So the idea that, that actually you learn by feeling things and that it's okay to fidget, to move, to shift, to, to take in stories in other ways, I think is just, you know, it's like 101. So I, I feel like that's a strange... I can't quite get the leap, how it's possible that from... I understand that it was from, you know, industrialisation and that we were training for certain jobs, but now that does not... We don't exist. We don't live in that world anymore. So how to upend and to introduce that actually moving, being, talking and this kind of um, interaction can really make room for, for different conversations... So, yes, that embodied learning, I think, is... Yeah, connects mm. back to the boats and all of, all of it. Mm. And I sense, you know, we are at a point where we often talk about compassion fatigue. You know, we're all yeah. scrolling through our phones yeah. and we're seeing stories and it might be refugees dying at sea and it might be refugees not being picked up and we're just scrolling and we're scrolling and we're scrolling. We don't know how to receive the information and at a point it just becomes too much. And in fact, we then sort of, you know, internalise that hurt and throw it back out at each other in these very polarised political conversations. And, and I feel we need to take this debate back into the arts and to humanise it. And Jay, throwing to you, you know, watching Children of the Sea, apart from the fact that, you know, I wept from beginning to end, it was, it was this long, long journey that you took that played out with such humanity on stage and you took people out of weariness. You talk a little bit about the audience reaction to Children of the Sea, you know, that space we felt, that energy that was felt at the end of each show and, and what sort of, you know, how you created it. That's a big question. Um, <laughs> I guess it's all about balance, really. 
It's about the balance between, um, see, first, first of all, I mean, kind of like, I think young people and children have an incredible sense of resilience, innocence, and also curiosity and adventure for life. And I think that, it, that, that, that energy, that the vibration of childhood is what we kind of like we actually brought into the play where, yes, children are in a tragedy, but at the same time that we need to keep the hope because, and going forward, keep going forward and to find a home because it's, it's uh, they've just left their home behind. Um, and there is this, always this, um, when I was talking to people and interviewing children especially, there was always this sense is, oh, we need to find a new home and we're gonna bring our family here. And that is what we, that hope is what has actually uh, kept them going. Um, and I think that's what kept the work going. But at the same time, as the audience, we realized that that wasn't as easy as they think it is. And I think in that innocence and our knowing, their unknowingness and our knowingness, I think that's where the tragedy was, really, of the work. Uh, that a dream might not never be fulfilled <laughs> and I, I think that that is a there's a powerful powerful thing in there because it's it's been years some of the children have grown up here some of the children have sort of grown up in uh, detention and um, still living with that dream you know where and they have spent their entire childhood dreaming and um, I guess but still care carrying the hope because there is nothing else there is no other option I was just going to ask you to talk a, to talk a bit about hope because I think hope is is hope is the flip side. That's why we are all here and why we are committed um, and you are committed as artists to working through this kind of unbridled rage and injustice. You know, we see. Um, how does your particularly artistic practice, your photography, uh, capture and reflect hope? Uh, what? hope is there in, in some of your work that you can talk to. And, and then after that, I'd like everyone to, to sort of maybe uh, comment on what, what your personal and societal hope from your work is. Let's talk about hope because this is um, the 20th um, anniversary of the children overboard crisis, the Tampa crisis, this period of time in, in sort of August to October 2000 um, that, that sort of offset these, you know, human rights defying policy and, you know, pieces of legislation that have kind of determined our border protection policy. So, Marzia, tell me about hope and then tell me about change. Well, okay, that's, that's like a big order. <laughs> you know, tell you about hope. Um, now, look, I think compassion fatigue is very real and there have been moments where I've just gone, it's too much, we're not getting anywhere. And then what really brings me back is going back to who it is that I'm working with and their stories and even going back to my own story and my family and my parents and what they what they did you know to get to a certain point I mean so my mum was more open about the stories as we were growing up, but my dad didn't actually share his exact experience of what it was like to get on a boat as a teenager until I was about 27. Um, we knew it had happened. It was always alluded to, but the actual story, and it, it's horrifying, but at the same time, it's like, but you made it. And not just made it, you helped other people make it. So, you know, as a 15-year-old, he would drive people to the docks to escape because his family was one of the few that had a car and he was underage, but knew how, you know, would, would do that. So he helped other people. And he was 15. And, you know, he had to get on a boat, which was one of the last ones out of the city, the town he was living in. And, you know, people were throwing lit torches at the boat to try and burn it. And he survived. And not just survived, he... He thrived beyond that. And so I kind of come back to all of that, that there is hope in that sense, that, you know, he's, he's still here today. He's, you know, he's gone through so much, but he's here today and he's, you know, raised myself and my brother and, you know, he's, he's moved to accomplish that dream, that the way you're saying, you know, have that family and, you know, be there for people. And 
I think I get a lot of that sort of drive from him. Like my own personal drive comes from there. That you know that there is always hope. And then talking with people, learning more, and you know being being witness to all of this because there is so much devastation and so much of my work does deal with, for example, death. You know that, but then there's also so much that deals with life. That you know, yes, this has happened. How do we work towards something that is going to? How 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 do we we can't make it unhappen? But how do we stop it from happening again? So I think that's one of the really key drivers in a lot of the artwork is to remind that there and and that we're not alone. So one example that I'm thinking of is when I was taking photos around. Um, protests that were taking place um, uh, around what was happening in Gaza in the um, in 2014. And my photos were sent to someone who lived there and who messaged me on Facebook saying, thank you, We, at least we know people haven't forgotten us. And, you know, I just go, this is why I'm doing this. This is the, this is the hope that they're thinking people haven't forgotten us, we are still here. And I, every time I feel like this is too much, what am I doing? Um, you know, is this even having any impact whatsoever? I come back to messages like that. In terms of any particular images or pieces, there's one picture that always, it, it's probably one of the, my most favorite pictures that I've ever taken. Um, but it's the invisible stories that happen in protests that we don't necessarily see, or they're so hyper-visible that they become invisible, that people just go over them. And it's a picture of, a, um, of an activist, quite well-known activist, who in the middle of an Invasion Day rally sat down on the stage in Forest Chase and started to nurse her child. And to her, that's, that's part of her protest, is being in that space, knowing that just you know a few decades ago she wouldn't have been allowed to be in that space you know she would have had to have a pass to even walk through that space um to be there to actually nourish that generation the new generation you know literally and figuratively in that context and what really clinched it, and you can't see this in the photo but i think the mood still prevails is that while she was doing this the song they took the children away was playing and so it was just that whole moment of being in there and seeing that talking about what happened but then bringing up the new generation, giving them the tools to fight, giving them the tools to live and to thrive is such an important thing. And this person's known as an activist but she talks about how people know, don't necessarily know all the different parts of her and that image encapsulate that she is an activist, she is a mother, she, you know, she's all of these things in one go. And it's probably my favorite photo that I've ever taken, but it's also one of the most hopeful photos I've ever taken, just because of capturing that moment. And no other photographer did. And part of it, other photographers did see that, but they felt uncomfortable because they were like, you know, is it voyeuristic? Is it appropriate for us to take a photo of someone nursing their child and all that? And there's all these questions, but in that hyper-visibility, she became invisible. And so in that, so being able to, take that photo, and obviously I went up to her and said, you know, I've taken this photo, and we wanted to make sure that she's okay with it, but that's her favorite shot as well. Like, she was very, very pleased because she's saying, it's one time where I felt like people are seeing all of me, not just one part of my life. So I think that, that really speaks to things of why I'm doing this and what where's the hope. It's in those hidden moments that, you know, yes, you can have people going, you know, shouting on megaphones, and I take tens and thousands of images of that, but it's those small moments in between that really drive the protest, the invisible moments. Um, yeah, I think that's speaking to hope. <laughs> hope? <laughs> hope and small moments. Well, certainly small moments. Um, so I think I grew up um, aware that I had survived against all odds. So there was a moment where my grandmother's sister and mother and nieces were sent to the left and my grandmother was sent to the right. And so because of that moment in time, she survived and the rest of her family didn't. So I was very aware of, um, uh, the, I guess, the hopefulness around and the responsibility around having survived. 
I think for me, hope is a is a verb. So it's not, and it's not something that um, I look towards in the future. So hope is micro actions and moments and recognitions now. And I'm just thinking now. I wonder if that's why um, we've done so much work with like tiny, tiny things because I think the importance of uh, slowing down, of noticing interactions, of taking care, of, of being aware of the, the smallest, unseen, unacknowledged moments is enormously important. So I think for me there is hope in the connection I might randomly have with someone at an event or a conversation that opens up a possibility. Um, I think for me it's overwhelming to try to find hope in places like refugee crisis and environmental crisis and those places it feels it feels thwarting and I don't know that I will ever get the answer to the question why did no one do anything why is not why are not enough people doing something in order for this to change why why am I not doing enough in order for this to change um, so I think for me there is something profoundly significant in the the minuscule micro very sensitive tiny moments of a of a hand carved paper turtle and what that might make possible in feeling um, and I think also at times I replace hope with love because love's something that we can do now and it's often not something that we talk about in our professional lives or in our social impact work or in our advocacy but I think it's profoundly important thing to encounter and to um, exercise our muscles in that space. Um, I think hope is in the collective and in that it's collaborative and that, you know, even today the kind of zeitgeist movement of boats, you know, that, that all of our projects have um, independently come at, arrived at this moment of folding these boats in, in or creating boats in very different ways and that Shaheen, you know, has kind of seen this and I think ordinarily artists would um, potentially um, balk at that kind of zeitgeist of being swept up in the tide of being one of millions of things but in these cases it feels like actually well what if this flotilla can grow and what if that can become something what if we do say yes to the collective what if we do say yes to being like a little bit more humble or a bit more you know, something, letting go of something. You know, um, Lily's been creating boats for since um, 94 or something was the first exhibition of um, thousands of folded boats that were dipped in wax and then um, hidden under sand and all kinds of things happened. So that's a very long, long time ago and a long lineage of this boat folding that has now come into, into Boatbird and how we fit with um, the practice of... Um, Marzia's way of, of welding these boats and, and with Jay's way of seeing this kind of um, liminal space, you know, the between, how we can make some small object potentially open up these conversations again. So for me, hope is in, is in, the, is in the collaborative and it's also in, um, in uh, sometimes irreverence, you know, in, in just going, actually, it's so heavy, it's so dark, it's so, these, these conversations are so deep, so what if, we, what if we can flip it a little bit? And what if it doesn't matter if the kids in the sandpit turn the, the, the thing upside down or turn it into a paper plane? Like that, to me, that is such a, like, that's a great, you know, to, this idea that we have to be so reverent, I think, can also stop things from moving forward, so... You know whether whether we can change the ways of communicating like that. I'm not sure, but we'll try. Um, we've got half an hour left. Um, I'd like to make some space for active hope. So I would like to make some space for conversation. And we have two small activities that we'd like to um, like you to invite you to participate in. Um, firstly, um, we have the boats, of course, folding um, behind us. So we'd like you to take some time to grab a tea, a coffee or water. Um, we'd like you to, to think about what you've heard and, and to kind of fold that intention 
into the boat that you make and, and to take a pen and, and to write a hope or a feeling or a need for change or a sentiment or something you feel from listening to these amazing people talk about their work. Um, we'd like to, we have been collecting these boats. We will continue to collect boats um, over the next six months and we do intend to have a display of, of, of our collective hopes and in, um, sort of, you know, intentions to commemorate, to mark the 20th anniversary of border protection in Australia, um, the Tampa crisis later this year. We will be pop popping back up in the WA Maritime Museum in Fremantle Arts Centre. Your boats will be on display um, and your boats will be worked on and we will send the boats to a place where they are needed. Um, so we'd like to invite you to participate in that activity, to talk to um, the panel and to talk to each other. Um, I'd like um, to hand the mic to Marzia to um, end this part of the panel with, with a sort of collective intention. Um, hand over to you to explain what you're going to do and um, I'll be on hand to record it. Um, so it's when you're talking about hope and you talk about collective and so I mentioned the family that was taken from Biluela and are still on Christmas Island with two young children. Um, on Friday morning, I received a recording of the two children singing the little one's favorite song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And this song, it's a nursery rhyme, but it's actually become, it's become a song of protest in its own way because, because of its importance to Tharunika, the little girl, um, activists have been singing this at events and at vigils and it's been recorded and sent to the children as a message that, you know, we hear you and we are singing in solidarity with you. And what I would like to invite people to do is I'm going to play the clip and then I would really like people to also sing along with it and that will be recorded and um, we'll send that clip to them um, on Christmas Island as a reminder that they're not forgotten, but also it's such a universal song. Everyone knows it no matter where you're from. So. I'm just going to play that and then I would like you to also um, sing once that's played. everyone could sing that twinkle twinkle and when we record it okay here we go yeah you ready to record three two one and twinkle twinkle little star how i wonder what you are up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you So I will invite you to stretch your legs, get a cuppa, um, and our beautiful volunteers are going to um, man the boat-making station. So please stay, make a boat, write on it, and talk to each other. Thank you.